Hello. Four, three, two, one. You're on um, the air. Hit it. <laughs> just, well, I've forgiven you for your appalling behaviour towards the tail end of last podcast. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe we're back. I know. Thought it was going to be over. Well, it's. I was going to get, get you're myself on probation. A new, a new pod buddy. And I am going to start this time because just because I can. It's how you roll. Um, because I have recently read a book. Actually, I talked about it at the um, at the <laughs> the Enmore show, which is now, of course. Um, consigned to the dustbin of history because we forgot to tape it. And I think um, we should just talk about some of the stuff we talked about at the Enmore show because there was, what, a 1,000 people at the Enmore show and 500,000 yeah. people downloaded the pod. So, yeah, yeah okay. Oh, just, I love how just you slips that, that in. in. Just slips that in nice sure? and subtly. I don't know. It, or is it must, just you 500,000 <laughs> times? Um, right. So, um, I finished a book called The Yield yes. by Tara June Winch. Um, I have carried on about this on social media a little bit, so you might have caught up with my enthusiasm. I don't follow you on social media. The... Oh, <laughs> Fair enough. I don't follow me either. It's a bit tedious. Uh, anyway, um, God, it's a fabulous book. It is just um, – so it's kind of like it's a bit of a historical uh, book but it is a novel and it is also a little bit about the Wiradjuri language. And now when I say it like that, you think, oh, this is going to be a lecture about the Wiradjuri language. Is it going to be a kind of, you know, linguistics festival? It is um, this beautifully constructed and exhilaratingly well-written uh, book. So the storyline is there's this old guy called Poppy Gundawindi and he lives um, at um, a place called Massacre Plains, which is on the banks of the Murrumbee River. Now, this is a – these are all kind of made-up locations, but they obviously have um, clear parallels to um, um, various Australian places. Um, anyway, he's dying and he's old and he decides to write a dictionary. Um, and so he kind of lists all these words and for each of the words he has a kind of like a little story. And as you read the definitions, you start to get an idea of his life. And the reason why he's writing this dictionary, it com- becomes clearer later in the book, is that um, the place where he lives is um, being uh, – has been – claimed by this um, mining company and they're trying to kind of establish a, um, a native title claim that where they have to demonstrate connection to the land. Anyway, his granddaughter, August, who's a, like washing dishes in London or something, when he dies, comes home for the burial and then starts to catch up with her um, extended family who she hasn't seen for a while and then there is this dark thing that happened in the past that you start to learn about as she comes home and she's a bit unwilling to come home but she kind of reconnects and so they are two kind of strands of the novel and then the third is actually historical strand which is um, letters from this preacher missionary guy who ran a mission on the place where um, they live on Massacre Plains. And so you get these sort of three streams of contemporary um, recollection and kind of ancient history. And it's just, anyway. In- interwoven? Yeah, as you go. so right. as you go, you get like a slice of this and a slice of that. And then, right. you know, it's a bit of an adventure because um, uh, she's solving the mystery of what happened um, a long time ago. Anyway, um, it is – look, you know how I was very taken by Dark Emu? Yeah. Um, 
uh, the Bruce Pascoe book. This is almost like it's like the novel accompaniment. It just I get this. I really feel like there's something going on at the moment with um, Indigenous writing or Indigenous history that kind of is now really um, filling in all of these gaps in our nation's understanding of our quite recent history. And this book is, even though it deals with, um, you know, pain and um, dispossession, is an incredibly generous book and it is sort of written with great generosity and inclusiveness. I don't know. It's I'm, I'm expressing myself really badly. I found it very emotionally affecting and... Mm. Um, I what's, really, what's the author's name? Um, her name is Tara June Winch and um, she's a Wiradjuri woman and she grew up in Wollongong but now she lives in France. Like she met her husband and I think maybe they have kids, not sure. Um, but she lives in France and I think she's um, back in Australia sort of doing a book tour. But like it is such a – and she had a big hit with a book um, a few years back so it's not her first book um, but – Wow, it is so accomplished and it's such, I don't know, I, I felt very nourished without wanting to sound like a wellness blogger by the time <laughs> I got to the end of it and I just thought, I just, yeah, I think it'll win all the prizes actually. I read the book and thought this is absolutely amazing. Speaking of prize winners, I just uh, am about halfway through their most recent Stella Prize winner which is The Erratics. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Um, by Vicky, I think it's pronounced Laveau Harvey. Do you know what? The first time you mentioned this at the end more show, you couldn't work out how to pronounce it either and it's, you still can't. <laughs> I haven't heard it. I've only seen it written down. Um, it it is the story of a couple of sisters who have to go back to see their parents who live in a remote part of Alberta, Canada. Right. Um, and, and this is sort of partially – this is a bit autobiographical, isn't it? Because Yeah, yeah. it is, yeah. Um, it's a memoir. Um, and when it starts, they're visiting mother in hospital and one of the sisters writes – not Vicky, the other one writes um, on her mother's chart, MMA, Mad as a Meat Axe. <laughs> and – when when the book starts, you're not quite sure, is the mother really as horrible as they're acting? Oh, okay. Mm. Or are they Jones. ungrateful wretches mm. who've sort of neglected their mother and father and, you know, are resentful and, and acting like brats now having to care for her? And so it sort of starts unfolding like that. The, the tone, I would say, and the voice I'd describe um, as wry. Um, and, yeah, it's it's – I can see why it won the award. It's really uh, not having read all of the other books on the shortlist, though. Um, but it's it's um, it's a very engaging read, um, basically. And I'm and really so, where did you land on like, is the mother really evil or are they the jerks? mother's evil? Right, in okay. my view. Okay. <laughs> well, well, where I'm up to currently, yeah, yeah I'm <laughs> firmly on the side of the daughters. Um, and I also just knocked off, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert of Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. She's got a new book out called City of Girls, oh, okay. uh, which well. I just finished in bed last night. There'll um, be a stampede for that, won't there? I mean... Oh, I think so. Wouldn't all her fans be going for that? Yep. It's a novel and she's sort of obviously best known for read her Eat, non-fiction. I have not I didn't like it. It's not, right. my, not my bag. I mean, she's, she's a great writer. Um, she's really... And she's got, like, she's very, like, she's a very talented sort of presenter, isn't she? Like, does, oh, hasn't she got some massive TED Talk totally. following? At, yeah. I interviewed her on 7.30 the other week, Clang. Clang. And, I mean, we just did a short interview like we do on 7.30, so it was eight minutes. I could have easily spoken to her for an hour. She was amazing talent and she's very open and 
sort of authentic and she has a lot of wisdom. And so City of Girls is basically about New York in the um, in World War the sort of World War Two years oh, okay. and showgirls um, who work in a theatre. Right. Uh, the main character's name is Vivian, and it's basically about her life in New York and then you know, her life over the decades in New York. And it's just, it's a very, um, you know, I was looking forward every night to coming home. Oh, really? I've been a bit of a reading so slump. and I was Bit of a page turning? To, bit of a page turner. Literary page turner? Literary, pa- well. LPT? Well, I don't know if you'd call it a literary just a PT. page turner. Just a, a PPT. PT, plain yeah. page. Like, it'd be a good plain book, good holiday at Lionel oh, okay. the Beach book, yeah. Well, I mean, that um, those books definitely have their bloody place. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I loved it. That, that's the sort of book you want to read if you're in a bit of a reading slump, which is what I've been. Hey, um, just when you said clang before, mm. it just rang something deep inside me which is that I don't think I've told you about I went to the theatre to see Cat on the Hot Tin Roof oh yeah uh, yeah yeah which I know you saw too did you see Ray? oh my god Ray. I didn't oh end my up going god. actually I had to she's so good there's this great moment where she burps on stage I just could not love her more um, so she's a kind of you know she's big mama and Hugo Weaving's big daddy I mean really that's <laughs> all you need to say oh my god those two yeah. um, I could go on but I won't because um, it's closed just make everyone jealous it was amazing um but i was just sort of lolling around at the interval um yeah. jeremy had gone for a quick slash <laughs> no two ways no no easy way to put that <laughs> and so i was just lolling around and this lady came up to me and she said oh excuse me and it was not someone i knew so i'm like oh i'm assuming my politely interested face <laughs> yes and she said oh i know i'm sorry i don't know but i just thought you might like to meet and i'm thinking oh god what's this going to be and she she kind of draws me over and indicates to me um, a woman who I don't recognise and she says, I just thought you'd like to meet Leanne Moriarty. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I know. And, of course, I immediately start going. (laughs) 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 And she is lovely. Yeah, she's really nice. And not a jerk at all. I mean, not that I – she seems like a jerk, but just honestly, I I just assume that once you've, you know, reached Elton John levels of superstar, (laughs) you prepare your – Totally at liberty to behave like a complete wanker. You're going to have to watch out for a new book to see if there's a, th- a scene where they go to the theatre and Some she, idiot just yeah. blathers. And then afterwards I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't even – like, I just talked and talked and talked. I didn't even like – you know, <laughs> she was very polite. And I, she did talk a bit, but I think I really gushed, I think. so. Speaking of clangs reminds me also that I interviewed Russell Crowe recently <laughs> because I watched The Loudest Voice. Oh, I've seen three episodes of The okay, Loudest Voice, I'm which is currently on Stan. Um, so it is about Roger Ailes and the start of Fox News. Yeah. Roger Ailes is the man who started Fox News in the United States. And then that became a massive, massive business success. But Roger Ailes was brought undone as part of Me Too by his just serial um, sleazy, horrible behaviour towards women part in the workplace. Part of the, oh, my God, can you believe that men this powerful take these sorts of risks and then are surprised when – yeah, um, it all goes make people's up. lives miseries. He is, of course, dead now. He is dead mm. now. Um, so, although after he like groped Gretchen Carlson or whoever it was, was it? Gretchen? Yeah, that's who brought him down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but or started to bring. But him isn't down. my recollection maybe um, dodgy? But as I recall, she got fifteen million and he got forty million. Oh, yeah, that's to leave right. the company. There was some imbalance. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. He, so he's the one yeah. who's like behaved like an absolute jerk. Do you and know what I was wondering today? And you might have a theory on this. Mm. So Louis C.K., um, you know Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, all yeah. of them. Yeah, all of them. Um, their careers were all brought undone by um, you know. A handful of women coming forwards to say this happened. Yeah, Donald Trump. Now there have been 
easily more than 10 yep. um, credible uh stories of people accusing him of, of mm-hmm. harassment or whatever. He himself has said on tape that it's okay to grab women by the yep. pussy mm. and nothing's happened. Well, to be shamed, you have to be shameable, don't you think? Well, but, I mean, did so did Char- do you think Charlie Rose and them all stepped down because they were, they were ashamed? Yeah, well, I mean, Roger Ailes definitely got sort of forced out. But, I mean... Who is going to force the US president out? I mean, really, if you keep showing up and just, I mean. Just brazing it out. Well, he's, he's redefined saying, oh, brazenness. She's not, she wasn't my type anyway. I know, right? Like, I mean, one thing that I think that guy has done is train people not to have their normal reactions. I like just to set the behavioural bar at this such a crazy um, place that none of this stuff is surprising. I mean, that's all I can guess. I mean, it, it seems completely bonkers to me too. And I think, you know, one of the unbelievably damaging and tragic aspects of um, the last few years is what's happened to the office of the president, which is kind of like an – I mean, it, it's a tradition in itself and it is a tradition that is um, that continues because of the way its occupants – honour that role, right? Like, yeah. and so I guess if you decide to wipe your bum with it, then I guess that's up to you. Like this, mm. it's not like there's some, you know, mm. court of appeal sitting above you that's going to say, well, look, you know, you you're a naughty a boy, here's way. your billion dollar payout and on you go. I mean, it's yeah. just, there's no comparable power structure around the President of the United States as there is around even Roger Ailes. And um, I guess because the American system is sort of, designed so that ultimate power doesn't kind of reside with any particular group, um, you haven't really got a situation where there's mm. um, a group of people around him that will come together and um, force them out. Um, I'm going to a conference next month. Oh, good. Monica Lewinsky's speaking at. Oh, right, okay. Um, yeah. And she's talking about – one of the things she's talking about is overcoming shame. I'll be really yeah. interested to hear her. She's very interesting on that subject. I mean, I'm sure we've talked about it before, yeah. but I feel um, – when when you think back to that era, so around sort of 1998, mm. um, so 20 years ago – I mean, I'm, I'm pretty certain we have talked about this before, so I won't labour it, but I, I, I just feel so – I feel like almost ashamed myself at how she was treated. Like, Oh, it's and me too. And, and the jokes and oh. – I mean, I wonder – what would be really interesting would be to get all of those kind of, you know, Jay Leno and all the mm. – because the, the Lewinsky jokes were the backbone of late-night talk show I guess they'd just say times stand-ups. change, wouldn't they? Yeah, of course they would. Yeah, so, particularly those of that have been, you know, subsequently done for – no, actually I don't think any of that crop has been done for no. groupiness, have they? Mm. I don't but, think so. Anyway, yeah. back to um, – just to finish on The Loudest Voice, Russell Crowe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so is it worth watching? I, I've really enjoyed it and I've been I've only seen the first three episodes and I'm hanging to see more of it. Um, he – Look, I was talking to Callum about it today and he said he's not really enjoying it. He, can't, he said he can't look past Russell Crowe's fat suit. I felt like within about the first minute I wasn't oh, seeing that seeing at all. Yeah. yeah, and I thought Russell was just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, I loved it. I thought it, I'm loving it so far. Well, I'm really enjoying um, seeing that. I watched about half of that movie Vice 
on the um, plane oh, that's the, the other day. That's the Dick Cheney. Yeah, it is. Yeah, with yeah. Christian Bale. Yeah, yeah, yeah what's yeah. that like? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm only about halfway through it um, because it was one of those. You know how now they have movies on flights, but then on a domestic flight, unless you're going to Perth, you never see the whole movie. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's been really, really good for. Um, the sales of films on, um, you know, iTunes oh, or whatever. Because, because you need to see the end what you it. want to do is come home and then buy the movie oh. so that you can watch the second half of it. Yeah. Mm. Interesting thought. Yes. I'm full of interesting thoughts, love. If you enjoy Chat 10, you can visit it. Well, that's going well. <laughs> if you enjoy Chat 10, you can visit it. <laughs> what my friend is trying to say is if you enjoy Chat 10... You can visit our website, www.chat10looks3.com. What are we actually saying? I can't remember. No, no, keep it Like, this is gold. Keep it going. Okay. Visit visit our website. You can follow us on iTunes and leave a review. Um, Our website, chat10looks3, just Google it. You'll get there. We've got a link called Bedside Table where you can buy books. Sometimes we have merchandise. You can download the podcast. Um, It's about it, isn't it? Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. You're the greatest. You're so good at this. Speaking of movies, I wanted to see this. Oh, do you want to? You want to have a turn? No, you, your turn. But then I get another turn afterwards. <laughs> um, I wanted to see this movie so much that I actually hired a babysitter to come on Sunday night so I Jeez. could mystify. Ah, yes, documentary about Michael Hutchins. <laughs> um, no, the film. Um, it was. I mean, I like. I remember your mother going and asking for an inks uh, tape. Oh, my God, you and yeah, your memory. Like my brother wrote down that he wanted an in excess tape <laughs> for his birthday or for Christmas or something and my mum went to the record store and was asking for an inks. <laughs> Have you got anything by inks? <laughs> <laughs> that's so cute. So, I mean, for our era, that's like part of the soundtrack of your life, of course, right? As yeah. any Australian kid in yeah. the 80s, in yeah, excess. Yeah. Absolutely massive. Yeah. Um, and I've been re-listening to a bit of it in excess, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, oh, geez, it stands up. Yeah. Fantastic. Sure does, yeah. Great songs. Um, anyway, so the doco is – it's done in the style of that Amy Winehouse doco where you never oh, see anybody. It's all right, audio. Okay. Oh, right, okay. Um, and people have given – Okay, so it's a – right. Because there was a telemovie, wasn't there, about – That's right, yeah. Like, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's really good. Um, and so they have lots of – like, for example, Kylie Minogue's given over some home videos and things. Wow. Like there's okay. and photos and stuff yeah. like that. And so basically they're telling the story of Michael Hutchins with the voices and they put like super up to say who's speaking um, of people that he was close with and I'd say it relies fairly heavy on his heavily on his former girlfriends right. um one named Michelle Bennett who sounds oh, like right. a real Who's sort the of original, love of his life yeah. um and then Kylie Minogue and Helena Christensen and um and then also other various friends who were sort of around right. and close and um, an agent in the U.S. Man- right. manager in the U.S. <clears throat> and the other band members um they had oh, – I'm trying to remember. They the didn't Farris have Kurt Brothers. Pengilly. They had, I think, one of the Farrises. Right. I'm just trying to remember if they had both Farrises. They had one of the – the they had one of the – They had Mr. Farris, the right. Farris dad. Oh, okay, right. Talking about Michael when he was a little boy. Um, and so it's sort of – in my memory um, – I still had in my head the stuff about, oh, was it sexual misadventure, his death and all of the rest yeah. of it. I don't know why, but that was still what was in my head, even though it has been Well, it reported. was supposed to be, you know, some sort of autoerotic. Exactly. You know. But um, the coroner categorically stated at the time after the investigation that 
he found that Michael Hutchins um, intended to and did commit suicide, Mm. like undoubtedly. And when you hear – when you sort of watch the whole sweep of the documentary and you see all of the pressures involved with um, getting into a band that becomes so massively famous and such a big hit around the world and just I'm always struck with rock things like the touring and the travelling, oh, my God, like how you maintain any relationship at all, I've no idea, just the exhaustion of it, the isolation, uh, just it's a really strange way to live. And then um, he's – he had, um, which I think was revealed for the first time in this, an accident in Amsterdam where he and Helena Christensen had stopped to have some pizza somewhere right. and then a taxi driver, there was a sort of altercation and the taxi driver hit Michael Hutchins, he fell, hit his head and he had quite a severe brain injury and lost his sense of smell completely. Right. And they'd sort of established like what a pleasure-loving guy he was just in every aspect of life. Like mm. if he was here, that orchid that's sitting there, he'd be waxing lyrical about how beautiful it was. And are you looking at how beautiful it was? You're like, mm. You know, that sort of a person. And so they had. there's a neurologist who's interviewed to say people think – people don't realise losing your sense of smell, how bad that is until you lose it and how absolutely yeah. integral it is to many experiences in life. And so he became quite depressed after that and also everyone around, the band members and Helena Christensen and whatnot said – his personality changed as a result of the brain injury. Um, And so then he was with Paula Yates and they got into that terrible custody battle with Bob Geldof. And they then sort of do, I guess, a timeline of that final morning of his life and he's rung, you know, multiple people quite distraught, including Michelle Bennett, who he's still yeah. good friends with. And she, he, he said, you know, can you come around or, or she agreed to come around or something. And But she said to him, Michael, you just need to have a sleep. You feel better if you have a sleep. And then when she came around, she knocked on the hotel door and there was no answer. And she thought, okay, well, great, he's gone to sleep. And then um, the maid found his body a few hours later. So it, it's really, it's very sad because... I mean, he's just – when you're watching all those clips, I mean, yeah. oh, my God, he's just so talented. What an amazing front man. And it just – you could see the sort of the building of just the weight of all this stuff that was going on. And so it was just – it was a really lovely sort of, um, I thought, tribute to him. And it did, you know, just once and for all establish, I think, that the poor bugger did – commit suicide in an act of depression. Yeah. yeah, not not there was nothing. And it turned out I think Paula Yates is the one who introduced that into the sort of narrative right. a year or so later by saying, Oh yeah, it might have been like we used to do stuff like that and so maybe it was something yeah, like right. that. And then that sort of stuck. Um so yeah, just a real tragedy. But also it was a pleasure just getting to sort of watch him and to see all the home videos and to hear Kylie Minogue talking yeah. in great yeah. detail about what it was like. There was this great bit where she says, um you know, the sort of public story at the time was that I was this naive young girl with you yeah, know, Michael no made experience me sexy. the world. Remember that? Michael <laughs> made me sexy and, and introduced me to all these new experiences. And yeah, let's face it, it was true. <laughs> <laughs> so she spent as she talks about when they broke up and how she said he totally broke my heart. And yeah, it's just, it's really fantastic. It's interesting, isn't it? How. Um you think that you couldn't know anything more about that story, but then it's sort of like a bit of an onion, isn't it? Like mm. w- w- different people who feel able to speak given different contexts because, you know, I can. it's interesting that Kylie Minogue has kind of been involved in this because I can imagine that it would take a long, long time for the sensationalism of the story um, and the sort of 
sheer kind of profit motive of finding out more and more stuff about this drama mm. um, to kind of fade back to the extent where you think you can now speak in a way that actually creates a more substantial understanding of this person who was a very significant person yeah, in Australian yeah. culture. So, yeah. And, and just like such a significant person in your own life yeah, where everyone else feels like they've just got this massive interest and ownership of it and, and I think that would be really hard. I mean, it was fascinating too talking about because she said that the bulk of their relationship was conducted via fax because they were always <laughs> travelling. I suppose the fax is out of the question. <laughs> God. Um, because they're both can on the have, tour. Can you have fax sex, do you think? <laughs> well, she said it was terrible because they'd have to, you know, you'd have to fa- – it would be in reception, someone would read it, put it in an envelope, then the next oh, yeah, person right. would get it and then it'd finally sort of land under your door. God, that but wouldn't she, last two seconds, would it now, in the, oh. in the paparazzi age? But she said, you know, that was that was the era. Like we, they weren't texting and having mobile oh, phones and, and they were always in different locations and yeah, their, right. their teams would be looking at their schedules trying to work out ways for them to actually oh, meet. And, yeah, it was just – and so when, when they were splitting up, she's flown to New York and – um, she said she was on this insane touring schedule and then she had to get this sort of trip into New York to see Michael where he basically dumped her and she said she was just destroyed oh, and just God. had to go back on her tour. Oh, dull. Don't ever dump <laughs> me know. while I'm on tour, will you? Oh, I love Kylie. Oh, no. I love her too. Um, but that's – yeah, God, it just reminds me, the faxing reminds me of that um, – God, that bloody Michael Jackson series with those two – Men who, oh, yeah. yeah. Why does the faxing remind you? Oh, because um, the Australian kid um, was constantly faxing back and forth, and they still had all these faxes mm. from Michael Jackson. Anyway, sorry, it's bad, um, bad little mental leap to take. Um, God, I've still, I've, I've actually got heaps of things that I've read and watched and stuff since. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I did Hit me with a few of them. You've got, oh, you've look, got about five to, minutes. I know, yeah. <laughs> um, I read this book um, and, look, it's no surprise that I've read it because I've got a cover line endorsing it. So it's <laughs> like, I'm, I'm glad to learn that you yeah. have, in fact, read it. But um, it's by Georgie Dent, who I know a little bit from her um, work um, in the media. Um, she's a very, like, hardworking journo and editor and um, a very nice person. And she's written this book called Breaking Badly, which is about um, – it's actually this incredibly searingly honest account, although I feel like searingly honest is now becoming a bit of a cliche, isn't it? It's like, you know, shots rang out. <laughs> searingly honest memoir. <laughs> Next I'll be calling her a bold new voice in Australian. No. Uh, anyway, but it starts when she was um, – when she's uh, a lawyer, like I didn't know she used to be a lawyer, but she was a young lawyer and she had Crohn's disease and so um, she had a few health problems but she started, you know, um, she's an incredible perfectionist and started, just disappeared into this real vortex of anxiety teamed with health problems that kind of exacerbated each other until she went from a point where she was this sort of um, – successful junior lawyer, very hardworking, long hours, to just being unable to get out of bed. And she had to stop working, go home to her parents' house and basically become this sort of hermit. She was like an absolute prisoner of this anxiety and these health problems that she was also having. Anyway, it, it's it's 
basically the story of how she came to terms with this crippling anxiety and kind of talked herself out of it, like very, very, um, with the help of all sorts of professionals. But it is, ah, it's a really readable book and um, you sort of really like her over the course of the book, but it's just this kind of, you know, she just lays it all out there. And I think it's actually one of the things about um, mental illness is, I often think that people who have survived it um, don't tend to often write stories about how that happened because often they – and you get this in politics as well. Lots of people in politics have experienced depression, but heaps of them don't talk about it because they don't want to be seen as weak. They don't want to, you know. Right. So they get through it and then that's it. They don't talk about it anymore. So, there's, so they don't become success stories in the way that, you know, mm. people who have overcome physical disabilities yeah. – um, or physical illness or misadventure do. And I think that's a real – it's really bad. It's kind of like a real gap. And so I always think when people tell the stories of what happened to them in terms of um, mental illness um, or anxiety or depression or whatever, it's really valuable because it not only kind of normalises the situation but also – really makes it clear that i mean I, mm. I don't know georgie is a massively successful professional person and i would have had no idea that she'd gone yeah. through this extraordinary kind of journey um if she hadn't been brave enough to write the book and i remember when she wrote me this letter um she sent me an email saying i've written this book um and would you uh look uh consider reading it you know, and if you like it, um, give me a quote to use or whatever. But she <laughs> she asked it in this incredibly roundabout way. It was like, oh, God, it's probably terrible. It's like, you know, oh, and you're, you know, really busy and I hate to ask and, you know, Jesus, I mean, like, really just don't even reply to this. And, you know, also I just think the book, I don't know, God, it's probably a disaster. And anyway, I just – opened up I think she'd sent me a sample chapter and I read this sample I mean I thought no right okay I'll have a read but as soon as I'd like read 100 200 words of it I was kind of really hooked and so I read the whole sample chapter right then and there even though I had other things to do I was just like oh god but I couldn't stop reading it and then I wrote back and said well now I want to read the rest of the book so (laughs) I did but um anyway it's a great book it's really good okay cool Breaking Badly Breaking Badly okay good I shall look out for that Mm. um I've got Anything more to else? talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, um, just because I'm reminded by uh, the character of a young Georgie Dent as a, um, as a young lawyer, um, one book that I know, look, you and I handed a prize to this writer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at the Australian Book Industry Awards. And I have met the author a number of times over the years. And when I, we handed that prize to her, I thought, oh, shit, I still haven't read this bloody book. Oh, I know exactly and, what you're talking about. Right. So the same thing. Yeah, so um, Eggshell Skull is the book and yep. it's, you know, it's won lots of prizes. Yes. And um, it's also got a cover line from Helen Garner. I so know. really, Who obviously. loved it. Yeah. Brie, Brie um, Lee. The so author. Brie Lee is the author. And so she um, – it's like a bit of a memoir too and um, it deserves to win all those prizes because it is as outstanding as people say it is and I feel um, a bit abashed that I haven't read it before. Um, So she is uh, a law graduate at the beginning of the book and she's a judge's associate. Now, it's such a weird job being a judge's associate. You are essentially like a sort of valet and attendant to the judge but you're also – 
it's not like you're just sort of, you know, packing the cases and wheeling the trolley bags. You're also, you're basically law graduates that go to become associates are usually the cream of the crop, like they are incredibly sought after jobs. And um, you are um, compiling precedents, you're doing all sorts of legal stuff as well as you know, sorting out that the judge is where she or he is supposed to be and so on. So she goes um, – uh, she gets an associateship with a judge who she refers to in the book just as judge. You know, mm-hmm. you don't know his name. And he's a – he's a, um, a re- he often goes on regional circuit, right? And um, so she goes off, packs up and goes off on this adventure. Now she's kind of um, – uh, feels a bit – like a fraud in the job. She's like, oh, there's all these other associates that seem smarter than me, whatever. She also, you can tell straight away, has got like a bit of a body image situation. Like she mentions, you know, like that she's like feels fat or big or something, Um, which is, I mean, this woman is, I know. Divinely Insanely beautiful, but anyway. Whatevs. Um, So um, she then um, goes on regional circuit and discovers that a lot of the cases that they are hearing are um, child sexual assault cases or sexual assault cases involving women. Like there is this sort of incredible over-representation of these cases in what they hear in regional areas and she starts to recognise a pattern. Um, There's really low rates of conviction and she is – hearing and watching all of these women giving evidence and sort of um, cases where children um, have grown up and then reported offences and so on. And after a while you sort of – you think, oh, you know, there's actually hardly anyone outside the judiciary who would have this sort of bird's-eye view of all of these cases, right? Because really unless you're a court reporter that's travelling mm. around with a particular judge, you don't travel around mm. and, and, you know, like so you might – have an idea of what's going on in your local court if you're a local court reporter, but you don't get that bird's eye view of all of it. Yeah. And then um, as the book goes on and you hear more about um, not only these cases but also her very uh, visceral response to them, you understand there's something going on with her and that these cases are bringing out for her something that happened to her um, when she was younger. And so the book then becomes this quite um, gripping, um, compelling um, and genuinely, um, I don't know, you feel like she starts to articulate that she needs to make a decision about whether to report the thing that happened to her um, when she was a teenager and um, – or even younger, actually. And you, I can't explain it. You, it's almost like you move as a reader into her decision-making process and it's incredibly tense and um, it's just – really quite an extraordinary book anyway I won't tell you what happens um, no I, I really am keen but, to read it yeah and it's it is again you know um like Georgie's book it is like it's I don't know I think if you were writing a memoir particularly of something that was very difficult for you you would constantly fight yourself when you felt you needed to include you know brutal detail or you know things that 
make you look like you're out of control or that are like unattractive about yourself. She's been incredibly diligent about including and um, making this a fair account and you sort of feel that she's absorbed that from her rising sense of outrage about justice and how it's done and her her consideration of what would constitute justice in her own case is really compelling as well anyway it's a it's a really good book and there is a reason why everybody says it's a great book (laughs) margaret atwood once in her book on writing um says that you can only really write sort of truthfully about yourself if you write with one hand and you imagine the other hand coming along immediately erasing it straight away because it's so excruciating not only to imagine anyone else reading it but just to even imagine your own future self reading it Oh, God, yeah. So Every time I've tried to keep a diary, I'm just so filled with self-loathing that I have to stop. I kept one very, Flora's fancy, as you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, stopped like many years ago now, like 15 years ago. Just, yeah, I don't know why because it's um, – I mean, any time I've ever looked at them, I'm ex- it's excruciating, they're unreadable, but yeah. um, I assume at some point they might be handy to mine for something, but I don't yeah. know if I'm writing overwrought teenage <laughs> – Fiction. Wow, yeah. Hold <laughs> right. the phone. Wow, I've let you go to 37 minutes. You That's have. quite unusual. God, <laughs> let's have a post, post-coital cigarette or something. 